it's getting everybody on the same page of our needs. But when you're doing that, it's what are we trying to address? What are we trying to accomplish? Reminding people of our why constantly throughout the process so people don't fall into rabbit holes of like their own sort of point of view. Because granted, if you got all those people in that magical room that you were talking about earlier with everybody, if you ask those people, what do sellers need? You're going to get 12 different answers. And that's because they see they have the point of view from their experiences and their silos. So then it's, it's working with those people to collaborate. So it's not so much like getting a consensus on everybody agreeing on everything, but it's sort of building that narrative and getting buy-in as you build a narrative as you talk to the different buyers and what they care about and what's most important to them. Welcome to Modern Sales, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business owners, and salespeople looking to have more and better conversations with your perfect clients. You'll get a healthy scoop of psychology, behavioral economics, and sales studies to help you create win-win relationships. I'm your host, Liston Witherell, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Modern Sales. What happens when the stats are wrong? When the things you're told are more difficult, not less difficult, and the stats make it sound deceptively simple. According to Gartner, there are six to 10 decision makers in a typical B2B sale. According to my guest today, that number is just too low. In some of his most important decisions, he has a dozen or more people involved, weighing in on their needs, each with a potential deal-ending veto. That's one of the many topics my guest today, Bill Ball, covers in this Buyer Insights episode. Once again, this is the Buyer's Insights series. Welcome, dear friend. And in this series, I'm interviewing real buyers at real companies to uncover their buying process. Bill is the Director of Learning and Development at Dysis, a global IT staffing company. He's had experience both as a seller and now on the learning and development side, primarily as an executive. Today, he shares his experience as a buyer. Get your notebook out. You're going to want to write down some of the takeaways Bill has for you. And we'll start with how needs get surfaced. Where in the heck do they come from? And what does the source of the needs have to do with anything? You'll find out after the short break. So Bill, my first question for you is, how does the need first get surfaced in your organization so that you're considering buying services or products from an outside vendor? And what I'm looking for here is, at what point does something become such a serious need that you guys are actually looking to engage with the outside world? So a few different ways. The primary way, though, is my title is learning and development. My focus is on our field, which is recruiters and salespeople. And it's a strategic function. So what I mean by that is we're constantly looking at data. We're having conversations with people and trying to isolate the gaps that are going to have the greatest impact. Based on the gaps that we see in the business that are impactable by my function or working across the aisle with other functions like HR marketing, we determine needs primarily that way. So instead of a reactive kind of function where people are asking for help with things, and they certainly do, or saying, have you seen this? And we try to incorporate all that into what we're looking at. We try to employ a more strategic look and really sort of isolate so we know what we try to do, whether it's professional services or technology, it's going to impact something that where we already know there's a need. And so 
Does it typically come from, let's be a little bit more specific about your role. So you're in the sales enablement function, which is your purview. When needs become surfaced, are they coming from your VP of sales? Are they coming from your CEO, your CMO? I'm wondering who internally starts to bubble these things up to you. It's interesting when needs do come from the CEO, we discuss it very quickly. And usually it's more of not so much a should we do that or not, but a how should we do that. And a lot of times the CEO is not necessarily just my CEO, but a lot of CEOs are less concerned with the how and certainly concerned with the why. But it's if you're doing your job effectively in an enablement or a learning and development kind of role, you're constantly talking to people. So you're talking to the sales leaders, you're talking to, in my case, I report up in a really unique way. My boss heads up field enablement and operations, and that includes not only my department, but marketing and proposals and ops in general. So the three of us, the CEO and she and I have discussions, but my ear is most directly pointed at the leaders of sales and leaders of recruiting. So a lot of things come my way. We even have somebody who looks at all of our software and, and sort of manages all of that from an operational standpoint. So a lot of things come across his plate and he'll say, hey, have you looked at this? And we sort of blend those things together and try to make a decision. But ultimately, it's myself and the VP of Ops and Enablement working to with the field to nail this stuff down. They'll call out needs, but we'll try to gain consensus across the field and across the sales leaders before we roll anything like that out. Unless again, it's something that comes from on high at the CEO level. And then a lot of times it's more about how we do it. And so where the need comes from sounds like has a strong influence on priority. Correct. What other ways do you use to prioritize? Let's say you're out talking to people on a regular basis. My guess is you have a long list of different things that you could be doing, right? Different needs that could be fulfilled. How do you decide what's in that top three or top five? That's really hard. That's keeping your eyes on the prize because there's a whole host of technology levers and service levers that I would like to pull right now. But it's you have to think about, you can't beat yourself up on that because depending on the size of your function and the capacity of your function, those are some of the limiting factors. And then you look on the receiving end, how much new stuff can my audience and my stakeholders truly absorb? So from there, it's, again, looking at where the needs are and going back to the original strategy and stay in the course. Obviously, you pivot if you need to where there's like a major issue, but those don't come up quite as much for me. It's more like this is the litany of things that I want to impact and help others impact in my organization. And let's stack rank based on what's doable in the team that I have and so forth. I'm guessing you have maybe an annual planning cycle or something like that, where you're looking at what are our priorities for the next 12 months, then you're comparing your list to that strategy, plus you have requests coming from on high that may also alter the priority list. Is that fair to say? Exactly. So that's the exact exercise that I do. And I'm actually doing part of that exercise next week which by the time this podcast comes out too late for people <laughs> who want to get in on that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but um, I'm pretty communicative with the people that reach out to me over the phone in particular because I have a lot of empathy for sellers. But yeah, it's looking at those areas of impact, also making sure that we're hitting all of our audience regardless of what's the most important. I also can't go on ignoring people in my strategy. Like my strategy has to love everybody and give everybody something. 
So I have to look at it that way too. And, and where maybe there's going to be some areas next week where I look at, okay, well, here's the two or three major things that I'm trying to do per quarter next year. And then are we going with additional headcount? And here's my business case for that. And are we going with additional technology? And here's my business case for that. But also then how can I pivot a little bit to help so-and-so out in Q1 and then also do a couple of things on Q2 that aren't part of that sort of broader picture that I painted for you? So let's say you're going in through this planning exercise soon, once again, and at any given time you have a running list. Once you choose something off of that list and say, okay, I'm going to tackle this, how do you go out and find options for vendors? Several ways. One, because I have a title as generic as Director for Learning and Development, I'm pretty well inundated with suggestions and ideas on a regular basis from the, I would say, email, then LinkedIn, then the phone. I kind of wish my phone rang more. So that gives me a little bit of a sense of what's happening in the marketplace. And the reason I say that is I feel it's my duty. Not everybody feels this way, but I feel it's my duty to look out for the business best interest and to sort of think about where we're going. That's part of my personality type too, but I like to think about where we're going and where my options are. So when we do get to attack this list of things, number five on the list that I was talking with you about earlier, I have some ideas for that. I'm prepared for that. And then what is the perspective of things, the top several things look like in the marketplace and how are they different? I want to have a little bit of work of a working knowledge before I dive in. But I also, in a field like learning and development, certainly sales enablement, if you say that you know the absolute truth always, always, you're missing out. It's about being vulnerable and saying, I don't have the answer for this. I'm trying something new. I haven't done this before. And that's why you build networks of people. So I'm part of the ATD network, and I'm primarily part of a group called the Sales Enablement Society, where I have a lot of contact with other people doing my exact role. So if I'm in a bind, if I feel like I'm on an island trying something new, chances are there's somebody I can reach out to that's going to have done that before. Okay. So I want to come back to that last thing you said, but a second ago, you said, I wish my phone rang more. Can you say more about that? I have a background in working specifically prior to this role and in working with a lot of people new to sales and in sales development and talking about the things that are going to be changing for sellers and certainly for recruiters in my world, but definitely sellers down the road is what can be automated and what can't. And in my view, it still comes down to the conversation. Being able to have those conversations, and I understand that you can call a LinkedIn exchange a conversation, but it's different when it's two people involved in a moment organically. There's a lot that you can see and that you can read into that. So when I have people that are still geared towards wanting to reach out to me in that way and engage me in that way, because then you can ask questions real time. Like if you're catching me, you're catching me. You know, I'm answering the phone. I'm not doing something else. And if I picked up the phone, provided it's relevant, provided you're not doing a feature dump on me, and it's something I'm curious about, maybe not something I'm necessarily ready to buy, but something I'm curious about, then I'm going to engage with you. And I, I do have questions because I was a seller. You know, I sold inside and I sold outside. So I get the job. I have a lot of empathy there, but you're catching me in that moment. And if you send me an email, especially if you send me an email that says, I've been trying to reach out to you by phone and you haven't, that's, <laughs> we're done right there. Right. But like the email thing, it's, I mean, it's helpful but I don't get to really engage, then you're putting a lot of work back on me. That's kind of how I look at it is it's less work provided you can answer questions about what you're reaching out to me about. I see. So are you suggesting you want more cold calls? Yeah. 
for sure. Amazing. Okay, careful what you wish for. It's okay, you know, provided it's relevant, right? So that comes back to effective prospecting. And I agree, be careful what you wish for. You know what the thing is that I get reached out to the most about? Leadership development. And I find that to be, I mean, yes, development's in my title, but how did I become the person? I mean, we've got a whole HR department here. How did I become the person that that was just the most popular person to ask about this? So I get one or two or three of those every single day. I'd be much more receptive to enablement technology or something to help recruiters and sellers, things that help me show empathy to get things out of their way or make them more productive or help them build skills. I get that stuff too, but I get a lot of people reaching out to me about leadership development, which is just kooky to me, but it's prospecting, right? It's it's understanding roles and responsibilities and figuring out who does what. So I figure people looking for me to for leadership development, I have a piece of that, but there's some other folks that they probably just haven't prospected or reached out to, or maybe somebody in, in their neck of the woods maybe just didn't respond and I'm second choice. I'm not sure. But yeah, I want to hear people reaching out to me. I want to know why they're reaching out to me so I can ask questions, especially if I'm curious and I'll tell them right up front if I'm not. You mentioned that you rely on your networks at ATD, Association of Talent Development, as well as SES, the Sales Enablement Society. What does that look like? Are there particular people you go to? Do you go to the organizers of those associations? Like, how do you actually rely on those networks? So ATD is a little bit newer to me. I was fortunate enough to speak on a a panel at the ATD Cell Conference, which is a spinoff of the larger ATD community, but based on sales enablement, I was fortunate enough to get invited to speak there. So that's a new one for me, but there's some really like phenomenal people involved and some people who really want to learn. So I'm just starting to build that network out. And there's some overlap with my sales enablement society network. But as far as the way the Sales and Ambulance Society works, it was founded in 2016. There's members all over the world now. It's totally volunteer. And there's a chapter in my city. So I have people that I've met at conferences. I have people at my local chapter. And through the combination of those two things, when the things that we talk about in our meetings and the things that we talk about, we have a discussion board and a platform. I have people that I jump on calls with and strategize with. The person that who's in, most in charge of their own professional development, I learned this a really long time, and this is coming from the L&D guy, folks, but the person who's most in charge of your own professional development is you. So in a field that's constantly evolving, I believe it's, again, it's up to me to reach out to people and see what's going on and have a soundboard because a lot of things that I'm trying, somebody hasn't tried before in my organization. Excellent. The next question I have, let's say, so you have the need has surfaced you start to develop your list of vendors. What's your criteria for evaluating vendors? I'd say first off, it's if I'm speaking for the collective, because like any modern buying situation, you're not just selling to me, you're selling to a group of people that are going to be affected by whatever I choose or whatever I work with them to choose is more accurate. So certainly I want to think about, does it work with our existing technology? How long does it take to get up and running? How long is it going to take for us to get results? But I would say that the other layer for that is, and this is why, partly why buyer agreement networks have become so big, is does it fit with our culture? Is this something that I just like, or is this something that our people are going to embrace? So I have to look at the different people that are going to be affected in shared services. So I bought a learning system last year, and I had to talk to people from marketing, I had to talk to people from HR, I had to talk to people from IT, I had to talk to people ultimately from legal, but I certainly had to talk to my leaders in recruiting and selling 
as well as my boss and my leaders were my toughest customers as far as that goes. So it's getting those people knowing that even though everything lines up on the stat sheet and it integrates well and all those kinds of things, it's getting all those other people on board. That was the big lift for me last time. And how many people would you say are typically involved in a decision like that? Actually have decision-making power. It's more than whatever Gartner says. (laughs) Oh no. At least in my org it is. So I'll just play this out for you without trying to count because I'm an English major. So I had the head of HR and her director just below her, my boss. I had two people from marketing. I had three sales leaders and one recruiting leader. And I had generally people from my team in ops and so forth. So another three or so people. And then finally, two people in in IT. So it was quite a few. There's a lot of buying that has to happen here to get something moving. Yeah. So I count 12 that you just named. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. I was wondering, does everybody come together in one meeting? Like you're all sitting around a table or like functionally in practice, how does that work? How can all of those people make a decision together? That would be really interesting to see all those groups together because they'd all, <laughs> I say that, I know I'm chuckling because I'm thinking about a seller listening to this conversation yeah. and imagining all those people in the room and being like, holy crap, what do I do with that? But no, it's not like that so much. It's more like making sure I'm gathering, if I'm the chief buyer, making sure I'm gathering everybody's point of view and incorporating that into the mix. So where like our IT department maybe won't be so engaged in everything that a certain platform for sellers and the field do. They certainly want to know how it fits and integrates and does it have like single sign on and all those kinds of things. And in this situation, they did want to see and understand and get a point of view because we're an IT and managed services company. A question that comes up a lot is, can we make this internally? And my frame on this one this time around was, are we going to, A, we don't have experience making something like this. Can we? Probably. A, we don't have experience. Do we have the bodies to allocate? Do we have the bodies to allocate, more importantly, to constant iteration and development of a new product? I don't know if we have that. That wasn't a hard conversation, but it's one that comes up from an organization that thinks that it can do a lot of things internally, and it can. In this case, it was better to go externally. But with the IT and the operations people, that was more of a a requirements kind of thing, a gathering of requirements and addressing that really early on. So it wouldn't be a stock gap later. With the other folks though, just about all of the other folks that I mentioned, they wanted to do a little bit of seeing and touching and feeling. And does that mean the decision is driven by consensus? Like you're, because you said you're ultimately the buyer and you're collecting information and you're going around and talking to people and, and sort of acting as the internal salesperson, for lack of a better word. So do you require consensus? Does everybody have to agree? And in that case, I'm wondering, do you sometimes end up with the lowest denominator kind of solution? That's a really, really excellent question. And there's some logic in what you just said. It's getting everybody on the same page of our needs. But when you're doing that, it's what are we trying to address? What are we trying to accomplish? Reminding people of our why constantly throughout the process so people don't fall into rabbit holes of like their own sort of point of view. Because granted, if you got all those people in that magical room that you were talking about earlier with everybody, if you ask those people, what do sellers need? You're going to get 12 different answers. And that's because they see they have the point of view from their experiences and their silos. So then it's, it's working with those people to collaborate. So 
it's not so much like getting a consensus on everybody agreeing on everything, but it's sort of building that narrative and getting buy-in as you build a narrative, as you talk to the different buyers and what they care about, and what's most important to them. With a learning platform, a learning and enablement platform, there's tons and tons and tons of different features. So it's understanding like what each person cares about from a feature standpoint or from a, a usability standpoint and making sure those things are addressed. And that ends up not necessarily being limited to one kind of product. But when it comes to finalizing, a lot of that's done through the people that it's going to be impacting the most. And in addition to that, to our sellers and our recruiters, that was our sales leaders and our recruiting leaders. So where I worked very closely with HR, it was more like guidelines and work with marketing it was more like guidelines. Work with technology, it was more like requirements. Who cared about this the most because they've got to use it and work with their people in it. But it's not just something that I do in my universe and shared services. It was our sales leaders. So they ended up being my toughest audience. And do you rely on your vendors? I'm guessing by the time you're going around talking to everybody, you probably have at least a small selection of preferred vendors, maybe two or three that look like the front runners. Are you going to them and saying, hey, I need collateral so I can talk to my marketing department. I need tools to go talk to my salespeople. I need tools to go talk to HR. Or are you the one kind of making sure that their needs are being met? It's both. So I see where you're going there. And that's kind of like, how do you support buying in through collateral and, and messaging? And, and that's really important right now, because in a world like mine, that salesperson had to help me buy, right? Yep. And that's going to come through demos. That's going to come through some collateral. That's going to come through some Q&A. So understanding as I sort of think about, I'm a very visual person. So this buying process was kind of like working out in concentric circles where I thought I knew everything. And then I talked to somebody else and that would sort of add to perspective. I talked to somebody else and it would sort of add to perspective until I'm building a more unified perspective of what we needed. And as I did that, you know, I started with a pool of about five vendors from doing my own research, as I explained earlier in our conversation. And those things, getting the perspective from the people that would be affected and the people that were in the decision-making process, it allowed me to narrow it down to about two or three. And then from there, it was everybody looking at everybody who really wanted a piece of this and wanted to have a, a say in it, looking at, at the different platforms and what they cared about and what they were interested in and whittling it down and choosing but again, the people that had the most struggle choosing and, and the most sort of defined points of view were my sales leaders and my delivery leaders. So I had to inform the, the other groups kind of where their heads were, and that helped me make a final decision. Well, now a question for you to maybe help improve the sales profession overall. Sure. <laughs> we'll see. What mistakes do salespeople make that you wish they'd correct immediately? I don't know if it's mistakes, but if not being prepared in a certain way is a mistake, this is an evolving thing, right? You just asked me a question about what kind of content would help people along a certain path. And like when I got to the legal path, obviously like having the right contract and having all the terms done and, and all those kinds of things, just like making that buying process easy because you heard in this conversation, all the steps and all the people I needed to talk to and went over. So if you flip this around back to the seller, it's understanding what HR might be concerned with and care about. It's understanding what IT might be concerned with and care about. It's understanding what sales leaders might be concerned with and cared about and so forth. And being able at the beginning of the buying process, say we're, we're sort of moving in, in a positive direction, calling out what needs to happen with those individuals, like asking who's involved, 
volunteering other departments that maybe aren't called out by the buyer and saying, are you sure so-and-so is not involved? In my experience, this, and these are the things they cared about. Have you done this yet? So really sort of having, like helping that buyer buy would be something that I think would have been really impactful in this process. And not that I didn't get some help, but I thought about this afterwards and I thought about your question and that would have been tremendous to sort of say, okay, what are all these departmental careabouts? How are they going to influence the sale? And what can I do to sort of help the buyer through all these steps, whether it be a collateral or just information? So that's part of it. That's the big lift. The other part of it is, since when you're talking about a technology like a learning experience platform or sales enablement, it's being able to tailor your demo to certain audiences and understanding the questions. And I did my best through that buying process to set up my vendors to win because I wanted them to be able to put their best foot forward. So therefore we make the right decision. And some of them played the same song and dance for each audience. And that was a bummer. So I think knowing when to pull in the big guns, you know, if you need a, a subject matter expert, or if you don't have answers to those kinds of questions, or you can't do your demo that way, understanding who is going to be on your demo and what they care about. And then helping that buyer sort of understand the steps involved and what the different department care abouts are, especially if they haven't bought something like this before at their company. Are there any kind of fatal mistakes that you see salespeople make? Like if they have some like one particular behavior, you just wouldn't buy from them? I don't know about fatal mistakes. I think that professional persistence is good. It's funny. The I had one person that just wouldn't go away, even though my budget changed because we acquired a business at the end of last year, right around my purchase date, and that affected my budget. And it just basically knocked this one vendor, well, for a number of reasons, my sales leaders weren't the highest on them, but it knocked this one vendor out of the picture and, and that person wouldn't go away. And, and part of me was like, okay, it's sort of a, a, a no when no means no. It was like the professional persistence was incredible and like, well, could we do it this way? And could we do it this way? And could we do it this way? And I'm like, my collaborators aren't into this. And collaborating is one of our core values at my company. So we're done. But on the flip side, I had a vendor that we ended up going with. They were not in our final three. They were on the outside looking in. And it's because of the transformational experience I had making that purchase with our sales and delivery leaders that I really got a sense of what could be absorbed in my organization. It made me run back to that that number four vendor and say, you know what, I think based on what I'm hearing from you guys, I was we were headed in this direction, everybody but you guys. But now that I'm hearing this from you guys, we need to go back over here. And what do you think about this? And one thing that the salesperson did, and not every salesperson can do this, but they brought their CEO into the conversation. And there was a lot of reassurance about product map. They were new in the space, all those kinds of things. So all the things that you you would have concerns about going with somebody who's new into a particular space and having that reassurance from the top level made a difference for me. Oh, interesting. So they didn't even have all of the particular features that you were looking for ready at the time you bought? Correct. But what we realized was like, how ready are we going to be to absorb all those features? A lot of what we were trying to do coincided with a build out and a product roadmap that they had. So it was sort of a win-win in that sense of like being realistic about how much we're really going to be able to absorb an attack at the beginning versus what we just needed to get started. That's really interesting because I think a lot of salespeople think they need to, for lack of a better word, lie 
right? And just tell the buyer, oh, I've got everything you could ever possibly want or need. And yeah, it's all going to be ready tomorrow. Whereas this vendor basically said, no, we're not quite ready to do everything, but let me show you what we are ready for and how we're planning to sequence our product features. So that's funny that you phrase it that way, Listen, because that's exactly what happened. And that's what builds trust is not being disingenuous about what's there and that you're the end all be all. But here's what we have. That's really good feedback. Would you like a look at what Rev B is going to look like? And so you have a sense of what that product roadmap is, and you have that sort of future conversation of, okay, well, you're here now. When are you going to be ready for something like this? Maybe we can work this out. And that's why it ended up working out. That's amazing. Well, Bill, those are all the questions I have for you. Are there any final tidbits of advice that you would give to a salesperson selling you to make your life easier as a buyer? Again, I'd say my favorite is the phone, probably second LinkedIn, third email. I'm not text buddies with people I don't know yet. I don't know if that's where we are yet in the world. <laughs> that's pretty weird, isn't it? You know, no Slack channels. So reach out to me over the phone, reach out to me on LinkedIn. And if I'm interested, I'm going to have a conversation with you. The I'll double down on what I said before, though. Get ahead of that buying process. Help your buyer buy. Like know what different potential stakeholders might need in that buying process and be ready to pull out the stops on positioning your product a certain way for a certain audience. My HR people cared about look and feel big time. So did my sales and delivery leaders, you know, where some of our marketing people were like, what are the capabilities with this platform? What can we integrate? What can we add to it? They were thinking about it as a creative palette and being able to sort of have those conversations and bring the right people in at the right time helped seal the deal with who we ultimately went with. I lied. I actually have one more final question for you. Okay. On this topic of persistence. So you mentioned that one of the salespeople that you worked with had incredible professional persistence. One of the things that I talk about in my training is salespeople really need to be prepared to reach folks who are just not ready to buy yet, or it's their buying cycles not matching up, or their product's not quite mature enough or filling the right niche. For whatever reason, the person just can't buy from them right now. How do you like people to stay in touch with you and stay persistent without being annoying? Yeah, to sellers, if you're only, I mean, I know this is probably a maybe more of a new to sales message where you're you're wondering, like, should I just look for people who are ready to buy? Um, you're going to have a really small audience if that's the case, right? So it's where's that buyer in their process, but understanding, asking them where they are in their process and engaging with them in a way that like brings value to them. You know, hey, I thought I would share this with you. I thought this was interesting. And look, we all know that you're selling. We do that. But if you're leading with some value, then there's going to be more interest for that buyer to continue engaging with you and start to reveal where they are in that process. I just told somebody today, I said, look, and this was about the same topic that you and I have been discussing. Like, I'm not looking for something like this. They also did a lot with content and we're rebuilding a lot of that stuff right now. So there's just zero need. So this person was a sales development representative. I was very honest with him. I was like, you probably won't be a sales development representative anymore by the time that um, I'm looking to make a change, but maybe not. So give me some things to look at now and follow up with me in XYZ quarter. I will tell you exactly where we are. But understanding sort of like what are the contracts, where the person is in, in that process and getting that information first and do that by providing value and engaging in, in a curious way versus like, hey, I wonder if you are ready to buy something like this. 
that's the look and, and be in your buyer's shoes kind of first method. And that's the one that I would imagine many buyers would prefer. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Bill. I really appreciate it. Final question, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, other than picking up and calling you on the phone, what should they do? Uh, LinkedIn's fine. That's the easiest. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate it. Thanks, Liston. That's it for the second episode in this pilot of the Buyer's Insight series. In next week's episode, I'll be talking to someone who's driving learning for thousands of people at her organization, so the weight of every purchasing decision is absolutely huge. If you aren't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so by clicking the subscribe button. You can also get notified of all podcast episodes with some behind-the-scenes info as well as other exclusive sales content I put out by signing up for the newsletter at servedontsell.com slash newsletter. It's totally free and it's linked in the show notes. And finally, thanks to everyone who makes this podcast possible. Tess Malajanovsky is our producer, Juan Perez is our editor, and Mary Ann Nokum is our show assistant. Our show theme and ad music is produced by me, Liston Witherell, and show music is by Logan Nicholson at Music for Makers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Liston Witherell of Serve Don't Sell, and I hope you have a fantastic day.